Well, I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning, and if so, I would just ask you to open it. We're going to return back to the book of Acts this morning. We've had a couple of weeks off from our study of the book of Acts. We are actually, uh, believe it or not, going to make our, or entering into our final push for finishing the book of Acts. If you're opening it, uh, open it to Acts chapter 24, and uh, we're going to be reading, uh, following what happens here with Paul as he's before the regional governor, Felix, and he's in a town called Caesarea. Now, since it's been a couple of weeks, I thought it might be helpful just to catch up real briefly and make sure we're on the same page before we read the text uh, to, to get uh, some background or make sure that uh, we get all the details because otherwise we're just going to jump in and we, we may be left wondering what, what happened. So just a reminder, uh, Paul was returning from uh, just strengthening churches and being a blessing to them. And he's on his way back and he wants to head to Jerusalem. He wants, it's been a few years since he's been back there and he wants to bring uh, some alms. He wants to worship there. Uh, He's, he's made a vow while he was gone, and he's going to come back. And every, you remember this, every stop as he's going back towards Jerusalem, uh, they keep telling him there's this sense of foreboding, and in fact, sometimes some outright prophecy that says, if you go there, the man who owns this belt, remember that, that scene, uh, he's going to end up in chains. If you go, keep going down there, it's not going to end well for you. And there's weeping, and they're advising Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. And yet Paul keeps saying, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm heading. This is where the Lord wants me to go. And he goes on that track, and he shows up in Jerusalem. And indeed, the church leaders there warn him and say, Paul, this is not going to be good for you. And they give him some advice, and he pays for some young men who are also finishing up the vow. He stays with them in the, there's, remember we showed you the diagram of the temple, the outside there uh, in those houses, the, and he stays there. And he's at the very end of that time. And then there's some Jews from Asia, which would be from modern-day Turkey, where he planted churches, where he had just been coming, where he had all, this, all these uh, scenes in his past years that where there, was, uh, there were some riots and there were some uh, uh, things stirred up because of they not liking what Paul was bringing to them. They see him, and they say, well, we saw earlier that this uh, man from Ephesus named Trophimus was with him. We're going to assume that he was also with him in the temple, so let's get him. Now, we all know, right, that's all just being cloaked for the fact that they hated Paul and they wanted every opportunity they could to get him out of the picture. In fact, they fell upon him and would have probably killed him had the, uh, uh, I want to say centurion, but it's actually the, uh, help me out here, I, I should, I should, Claudius Lysias, whatever, whatever is the tribune, that's, his, that's what his title is, the tribune. He sees him from the corner there, uh, from the fortress Antonia, and he says, wait a minute, what's going on? He goes and rescues Paul. And remember, after repeated attempts to find out what is going on with this guy, every time that they get, he gets the Jewish leaders together, every time he tries to find out, there's just more chaos. And so finally he says, you know what? They have a plot. They're gonna, they, they have said that we are not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. And so I'm going to just send this up the chain. I'm going to send this guy to Felix. He sends him under armed guard during the night to Caesarea. And it's there we find that Felix says, are you really within my jurisdiction? Paul says, yes, I'm from uh, uh, Cilicia. And so he says, then wait till your accusers come. And we're going to pick up in verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 1. Read with me if you would. We're going to go through verse 21 this morning. By the way, as a reminder to you, uh, if it's helpful to you to pay attention or to learn, uh, I give you a handout on the back of the bulletin. If you picked up a bulletin, uh, that's just if it's helpful for you. It's not necessarily if it's distracting, if you're going to doodle and not pay attention. Just 
cast it aside, but if it's going to be helpful to keep take notes, uh, you can use that. Verse 1, chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy such peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept with this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. I'm going to do a little insertion here. Depending on what translation you're reading, uh, you're going to, it's going to go on and say something according to, uh, that we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came with great violence. He took him out of our hands, and he, and he commanded that we come before you. And depending on what translation you're reading, it's going to jump right to verse 8. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out, he continues, from him about everything of which we accuse him. In other words, by examining Paul, that's how Roman courts worked. You bring the accuser before the court, you you get to say your accusation, he gets to defend himself. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything which you accuse him. And verse 9, and this is one of the key verses, I think, uh, that we're going to pay attention to this morning. Maybe not spend a lot of time with it, but it's key. Because as he is making this charge, remember, Tertullus is not part of the story. He's like, kind of like the prosecutor in this case. He's not been present. I mean, at least he does not name that he's been present with all this stuff going on with Paul. But he's giving the case. He's well acquainted. He's probably a, a, a Jew, but not, maybe not ethnically so, because he knows what's happening in the Roman court. His name indicates that he's, uh, he's is a Roman. And so he's the one who's sort of the bridge between them and Felix. But verse 9 says, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Father, we have a text before us. We can work through it. We can make sense of it in some regard as learning historically, but we're not okay with with just looking at it from that aspect. We ask for your help in understanding it from that aspect, but we also want you to speak to our hearts from your word this morning. 
The beautiful thing about your word, God, is it's living and active. It's able to, to, to just pierce deep inside, to separate joint from marrow. It knows deep inside of us. It's able to proof us. It's able to encourage us. It's able to, uh, to instruct us. It's able to make us prepared to serve you, to live a life worthy of, of you, of the calling you've given us. So we want to let your word do that this morning to us, but we need your help to do that. So may your spirit be the guide, be the speaker, be the one who has things to say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So very quickly, after five days, these men come to make their case, and that's where we begin. We really have sort of two sections of the, of the sermon this morning. It's the section of the accusation against Paul, and then it's the section of Paul's defense. We're going to spend time with both of them, and hopefully if time allows, we'll have some time to make a little bit of application. Or as you know, in this case, if I'm prepared to make application, I'm going to make it no matter what time it is. But... They come before the Felix, who is the governor of the area, and they say, here's the charges that we're going to make against this man, Paul. But before they make those charges, they do uh, what you and I probably uh, call uh, grooming or call uh, maybe currying favor or call uh, maybe just uh, being uh, full of flattery to have a good outcome. In fact, it reminds me of Psalm chapter 12, verse 2, which I put up here so you don't have to flip in your Bible to see it. At least I thunk it, but there you go. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, the psalmist wrote. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. This is the definition of what we're about to see, right? Lies, flattery, and with a double heart. For everything, you should just know this up front, everything that we're going to read that they're going to charge against Paul is not going to be true. Now, there's some, there's some side issues where you might say, well, where Paul went, there was riots, right? Well, that's true. But as we looked at those texts, and we just walked through the book of Acts, so as we looked at those texts, who caused those riots? Why did those riots begin? Who were the instigators of those riots? Was it Paul? No. Now, of course, you might try to make the case that, well, it's Paul's fault because of what he was saying. But in every case that we go back through the book of Acts, when there were big stirrings and there were people who got together and chanted for hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, but that was certainly not Paul, was it? That was men who were afraid to lose their livelihood and the money that they were making because of seeing people turn away from Artemis and towards Jesus, the living Christ. In every case, but because they knew, and we would say this looking in, from this outside perspective, because they knew their case was what it was, which is to say unfounded, they planned to butter him up, or they did butter him up. Listen to what they say. Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, how much peace did the Jews experience under Roman rule? <laughs> well, much is, you know, stretching it. It's even more than a stretch. It's like, it's not even true. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and by your foresight, since you are such a wise man, Felix, you're so caring about us, you have made all these reforms. And by the way, when it says for this nation, it's actually the word ethnos. So it's, it's, it's talking about the Jews, their ethnicity. Since you've made so many reforms for us Jews, you've treated us so well. Wait, the Jews love the Romans, right? Like they're really big buddies, right? They're big pals of each other. Not even close. And by historical records from Jews, uh, not Christians, from Jews, Felix was not actually that good of a governor. He didn't really do anything for the Jews. He didn't reform. He didn't. Now, he squashed some rebellions. So he kept some uneasy measure of peace, no doubt. But Josephus would say that much of that squashing did not actually lessen the Jews' 
uh, zeal for rebellion against the Romans, but in fact increased it. Well, so he goes on to say, I beg you in your kindness, you're so kind, you're so great, you're so wise, you're so excellent. Now listen to this charge that we have. Here is this man. He is a plague. He is a plague to us. Now he's going to couch his charge in some very specific language that would catch the ear of the Roman governor that would lead him to hopefully say, we've got to get rid of this guy. He is a plague. He stirs up riots. You might, if you have a, maybe a King James Bible probably, it uses the word sedition. He's a seditionist. He stirs up riots. He's rebellious. In fact, he stirs up all kinds of rebellion. And he is leading this group, this sect called the Nazarenes. And, and we should read that with a bit, of a bit of a sneer, a bit of derision. Like those Nazarenes. Like can anything good come out of there? Right? That's how, they, that's how they treated Jesus. And Paul is following this way. And he's a ringleader, Felix. If you cut it off at the top at the head, you can control it. For everyone knows that these sects, these, these, these places that are trying to gain control, you need to, you need to nip it in the bud to start with. That's your job, Felix. For if it comes back to the emperor ever, that there's this uprising and you didn't take charge of it, guess whose head is lost? Yours, Felix, can I remind you of that? Most excellent Felix of all kinds of foresight and who is so kind to us. I see a few of you are getting the fact that I'm pouring. This is what's happening, right? This is, this is the scene that's being painted in front of us. Now, by the way, can I point out, again, several times as Paul is journeying to Jerusalem, as Paul is being faced with opposition, I've, I've paralleled that back to the one that he's following, to Jesus. And we can do it here, too. If you would quickly look back, you don't have to. I can, I'll read them for you. But if you want to look back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. The Gospel of Luke, he says this, as Jesus is coming before Pilate to, to go to the cross. He says in chapter 23 of Luke, says the company of them, which is the, the, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, they arose and they brought Jesus before Pilate. And in verse 2 it says they began to accuse him and say, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give. Notice that they're going to, again, use very specific words that are sort of keynotes uh, to the Roman authorities that you got to get rid of this guy. He's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Did Jesus actually do that? We know that was false too. And he's saying that he himself is Christ. He's the king. you got to get rid of this guy. A few verses later in verse 5, they say he stirs up the people. Jesus stirs up these people throughout all Judea and Galilee, even into this place. Look at the exact same charge. Now, by the way, do you want to know irony? If you would keep reading in Luke chapter 23, in about chapter, verse 25 or 26 there, we know the exchange that was made for Jesus, right? Jesus was taken captivity and eventually killed for a man named what? Barabbas. Now, what do you know about Barabbas? Who was he? What did he do? He, started, he was an insurrectionist. He, he was a seditionist. It's the exact same word that they're accusing Paul, that they accused uh, Jesus of. He stirred up people into riots. The irony doesn't escape. Now, by the way, the irony should not escape us. That is the exchange that was made, by the way. I hope we understand that. Who are those that rebel against God? Who died to pay for that? That is the exchange that was made, by the way. Jesus for those that were really, truly guilty. It's no surprise that the charge made to Paul was paralleled against the one made to, against Jesus. 
It's the very same thing. Who was it that stirred up the riots? Who was it that caused the big scene of tumult in Jerusalem? The one being charged or the ones doing the charging? You see that irony, that backwardness, that switched aroundness hasn't changed and will not change. But for us, it is good to recognize that Jesus did exactly do that. We actually were exchanged. Jesus took our payment, our punishment. Well, let's keep going. Because in some effort to bring something concrete into this that they could really bring, by the way, it should be pointed out, and Paul does later on, but it should be pointed out that all those places that he was stirring up, you know, all these riots supposedly, all those other places, now, they actually weren't under Felix's jurisdiction, which means he really had nothing to do with that. So they have to bring something concrete to him. So they say, and I notice, notice carefully what words are used here. He says, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, when you use the word try, what does that indicate? If it says, if, if, it says, if I would tell you I tried to dunk a basketball the other day, what would that indicate? <laughs> now, you know me because I'm not, it's never going to happen, but right, it didn't happen. So they're bringing him to these charges in front of Felix, and their last gasp effort is he tried to profane the temple. In that, now I think we may be careful reading of that, or maybe it's reading too much into it, but in that, I think we can actually see it. They knew the truth. They admitted as much. He didn't actually do it. He didn't do it. We were pretty sure he was going to try, eventually, sometime. We assumed that this guy walking around with him that was, you know, a Greek, probably went in the temple with him because we saw Paul in the temple. You can see how all this works? The accusations of the enemy general, exaggerated, untrue. Now, if you were to, I, I mentioned that there's some extra text there, depending on what, what version you're reading, there's some more things there. Uh, I, I'm not here to, to debate this morning whether it should be in the text or not in the text, uh, but either way, if you look carefully what that says, if you remember, if, if either it's in your Bible, you remember what I said, is it actually, they give some testimony that disagrees with a piece of paper that Felix already has in his hand. For they say that we were going to judge him according to our law, which sounds pretty innocent enough, right? But the tribune came and with great violence took him out of our hands. Now, remember, Felix already has a piece of paper in his hands from Claudius Lysias, the same tribune. And what did he say to him? Claudius Lysias said, hey, I heard this great big to-do and I came out to see them and they were about to kill him. They were going to kill him, except I took him out of his hands, out of their hands. So even if that is included, or if that is part of what they said, it didn't actually help them. It, in fact, conflicted with evidence that he already held in his hand that said, my tribune tells me that's not how it was. That's not actually how it happened. In any case, what I really want to get to is to this, because this is a spokesman bringing the charges. But the crux of it comes down to verse 9. Because those that are standing there for whom he is speaking on their behalf... They give their full assent. They also joined in the charge, and they affirmed. They said, that is how these things were. In other words, up until this point, it's all words that's one guy's saying. Up until this, this, with this point, they're saying, now, we're comparing, we're in the court of man right now. But, as they stand in the court of man, they affirm and they say, these things are true. It's like for us today when we, 
place her hand on the Bible or place her hand on the Bible and raise her right hand and say, I swear to tell, I affirm to tell the truth. That's what they were doing. I'm telling the truth. That's how these things actually work. And I just walked you through the fact that none of what he said was true. It reminds me a little bit of when Jesus himself stood before some of these very same men, by the way. And he looked at them, and this is recorded in John chapter 8, verse 44, and he said, you are of your father. They didn't like these words, by the way. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. What did they want Felix to do? They want Felix to kill Paul. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. This is talking about Satan. He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see those words that Jesus said, we see again being borne out in front of Felix that day. The words they, yes, this is true. We can attest all these things he said is true. In fact, just ask him. Just ask Paul. You'll find out it's true when none of it was true. When your father speaks, he speaks out of his character and out comes lies. I don't want to take this uh, too far in our lives, and I think of this with my children sometimes. But when we find lies coming out of our mouths all the time, and this is not just the children, by the way, because adults are not immune to this. When we find lies coming out of our mouth all the time, should it give any indication to us as to who our father is? It's why it's so dangerous to say, well, there's just a little white lie, we might call it. Just a little mistruth, we might say. Just a little edging on what's true. Whose father? Who is our father? Where does that come from? What, what direction? What, which place is that coming from? It reminds me, let me just read these verses for you. You can turn there if you'd like. This is from Isaiah chapter 59. I'm going to read 13 verses, so it's a little section. If you want to turn there, it's helpful to see it in front of you. I was reminded of this text when I was seeing this scene painted. This is going to be sort of the hinge point for us to go to Paul's defense. As I was seeing this scene painted before, this is a representation of this scene, by the way. Isaiah wrote this, Behold, in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. So it's not that God, this is coming from a complaint from Israel that they're not saving, that God is not saving them like he ought to. And Isaiah says this, it's not that God's hand is so short that he can't reach you anymore, or that God's ear is so dull that he can't hear you anymore, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then he lists those iniquities and pay attention to what they are and see how they give us a glimpse of the scene that we see in front of us with Felix and the Jewish leaders and Paul. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave a spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, 
and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. The one who, no one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, and here's the outcome of all that, therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for a wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Are these words not a depiction written long before the scene unfolded and unfolded many times, but written long before the scene of today unfolds, a depiction of this scene before Felix? Here's the Jewish leaders, their accusations, lying, empty words, eager to shed blood, where justice will not be found. But let me ask you this, by the way, as well. As I read those words, and they are a depiction of the scene in our book of Acts today, did they remind you of any other scene that you see? Did they remind you of any other scene that you might see? You can pick many of them, but if you're like me, they remind me a lot of the scene that I see today before me, of the world around me, the culture that I live in. Go back and reread this. Do it, some, do it not right now, but do it sometime this week. Go back and reread that and see if you don't get glimpses of the culture that we live in. We long for light, but we're walking around as if in darkness. We yearn for salvation, but it seems like it's so far away. Why? Well, the answers are, of why are right there. Because our iniquities are before us. We know our transgressions. Because we have lying lips. We have divided hearts. We're not interested in justice. Our feet are eager. They hasten towards shameful things. That, that language of cobwebs. Nothing we ever make will cover us. Now listen, I don't know where you come out on these kind of things because it's really easy for us to all agree and shake our heads yes and man, look at the evil culture around us. But who are these words written to? We're not a replacement, but we're a representation, aren't we? This is not written to those who are out there. This is written to those who are in here, who are the church. Those people out there aren't yearning for salvation. Now, they are. They may not know it, but they're not, they're not uh, directly yearning for salvation. But we are. We long for it. Perhaps even in the American church we can say, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. 
We stumble at noon as in twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Well, let's turn to the opposite side because interestingly enough, as we read of the reasons for that darkness, that thinking that the armor of the Lord is so short, we also now see on the other side the defense that Paul makes, which is going to be the answer for the hope that we have and the light that we will have, that what gives us the light to walk in. Verse 10 says, when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, then he replies, then he gives his answer. And this is, now notice by the way, there's a parallel. Turtleus opened up with what? This big glowing statement that we said, that's just flattery. It's just, you know, whatever. You're trying to gain curry, curry favor. You're trying to gain favor with him. Paul also opens up with a similar kind of statement. However, his is actually true, for one, and it is, is, uh, is, is a little more toned down, is a little more direct. He says, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, again, ethnos, over these people, I cheerfully make my defense. You know, Felix, at this point, has been probably for almost 10 years, has played in some leadership kind of capacity over this region. The last probably six of those, he has been actually governor of this area. He knows what the Jews are like. By the way, he knows, you know, the, the leaders called, the Jewish leaders called this sect, this way of the, you know, this Nazarene, the way of the Nazarenes. He knows, by the way, that the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves are what? Also called a sect. Also quite adept at stirring things up. Felix knows all these things. And Paul says, I don't, I don't feel threatened here. You know us. You know what Jews are like. You know our background. You know where we come from. I cheerfully make my defense before you. And then he goes ahead and lays out his side of things. And notice the very first words that come out of his mouth. You can verify, immediately separating it from what? From their claim, which cannot be verified, right? Right? He says, you can verify. You know this. You can go prove this out. It's not been more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem. I went there to worship, and they did not find me disputing. You can go check this out. They did not find me disputing with anyone. I was not stirring up any crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Go check it out. You can go find this out. Now, notice very quickly in a short sentence here, Paul is brilliant at this, and it's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of him that makes him brilliant like this, but he was raised for this purpose for, from God to do these kind of things. And he had, God has other people like that too, but God, look at what he, in just a short sentence, he immediately dispels the fact that he didn't have the motive because his motive was to go worship in the temple, not to stir things up. Those weren't his methods because they didn't find, you can go look at, you can search it out. I wasn't stirring anybody up. I wasn't gathering any crowd. I wasn't doing anything anywhere, temple, synagogue, in the whole city. That's not what I was doing. I didn't have, have opportunity to stir this great crowd. I've only been there for 12 days. You can show, you can prove this. And let's get to the bottom line. There is actually a complete lack of proof. And he says that in the very next verse. He says, neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. Now, at some point as he goes on with his defense, we recognize that as Paul so often does, he, he sort of flips over and begins what we might call offense. He begins with doing a little bit of evangelization, right? A little bit of evangelizing. Because he immediately begins to frame his defense with words that also serve to tell Felix and anyone else in the vicinity about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, but this I will confess to you. This I will confess here is, what I, here is what I will give, give ear to. You can't prove any of those things they said about me, but this I will say. 
And then he goes on to say some things. He says, listen, I serve the God of our fathers. I'm not trying some new thing, which is key for the Romans, by the way. They're about squashing new things. They want to keep the old traditions going. And he says, listen, I'm following the God of our fathers. And he's also being very strategic because he's putting himself in the same place as these that are with him, right? It's the same God. In fact, he goes on to say, I believe in the same prophets, the same law. I have the same hope they have. They're not going to argue about this. If you would ask them, they'll tell you they have the same hope. And here's this hope. The hope that every one of us someday will be resurrected and brought before the throne, just or unjust. You notice how he's, he's going he's to open up the door for some evangelism because he's, he's coming up to that point that we all, there was more things they had in common, by the way, more beliefs they had in common about their hope even. But here's the hope that someday we're all going to stand before the judgment, just or unjust. And because of that, I have the same goal that they have to maintain a clear conscience before God and man. Do you notice how he just put himself, he said, listen, we're, and there's some differences. We're going to get to the difference here in a bit. But there's some difference. But we're really, I, I believe in the same God they do. I, I, I believe the same law and the same prophets they do. I have the same goal in life as they do because of the same reason. Because someday we're going to stand before God, just or unjust. And my goal is to have a clear conscience that day. Same aim. So, I came to Jerusalem. I haven't been there in a couple of years. This is my paraphrase. I wanted to bring an offering of worship to my nation. You see what he's doing? He's, he's helping Felix understand, I'm not against the Jews. I was bringing an offering to the Jews. I'm not against them. They didn't find me with a bunch of people in the, stirring things up. I came to worship. I came to present offerings. And while I was doing this, can I remind you, Felix, while I was doing this, there were some Asian Jews who saw me, and apparently they have a beef with me, but where are they at again? Why aren't they standing here? If they have something against me, they're the ones that should be bringing an accusation, not these guys. Oh, as for these guys? Well, here's something I can say. I'm standing here, and he said this back when the tribune was trying to, trying to find out why they were against somebody. I'm standing here for one reason. What is that reason? And this reason is both defensive and offensive. We'll see. It's with respect to the resurrection. I should put the verse up there. It's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Remember a couple of, well, several weeks ago when we studied this text, when he said it the first time, I said, listen, we don't want to look at Paul just finding some, you know, the, the specific like little nook that he can slip into to kind of divide them and slip away with his life. That he's trying to elude them and try to be tricky of some kind. We don't want to see him like that. For he's being honest. I am standing on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. We all believe, well, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't, but we believe in the resurrection. Now those standing there today, we believe in the resurrection. I just happen to believe the most important one already happened. And that's Jesus. And that's why they don't like me. You see how it's his defensive statement, but it's also opening the door for an offensive statement. We're going to get into some of that next week. But where he says, this Jesus, I do follow him, the way. This thing they call a sect, a heresy, that's the Greek word, heresis, heresis, I got to say it right. But it's a heresy. They say it's a heresy. I follow this Jesus. I believe the resurrection. I believe it already happened. There's proof of it. Let me, can I talk to you about that, Felix? Uh, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. 
but he gives us defense. Now, I want to wrap this up because I want to look at what happened today and just give a couple of points of application for us to stick in our pockets and take home with us. So far, we've been, I mean, I've, you know, we tossed a few things in, but so far we've been treating the text and looking at it historical, historically, which we ought to. I want us to see two things this morning, two things that I think uh, should, uh, would bear us paying attention to, spending some time thinking about, seeing how we can bring it into our lives. The first thing is I want to make a connection between two words. There's a word in verse 10 where Paul says, I want to make my defense. And then there's a word in verse 14 where he says, this I confess. Both of them share a similar root. I put the Greek words up there so you can see that they share a similar root. It's the word logos, which is the word uh, to speak or the uh, word word actually. To make my defense is where we get the word apologetics. Apologehamai is the action of that. He's making his defense. And to confess is hamalageho. Which really is, I love this, this definition of confesses right in the word itself, because it really means to say the same. It means you're saying the same as what God says. That's why it's a confession. You're agreeing with God. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God that what you did was wrong. Right? That's what confession is. So that's why the word hamalageho is confess. But I want to make a connection between Paul saying, I make my defense, and Paul saying, this is what I confess. This is what I uh, give, give ear to. Because I want to I draw that connection for you so that you, can, you and I can see that every good defense of our faith will include our confession of faith, our own confession of faith. You see, it's that, that's that part or that principle that says, if I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe, it has to move beyond the theoretical of why this is all true out here, but what it has meant to me here. And Paul is doing that. He's saying, this is the hope that I have. Let me flesh that out for you. It's knowing that I have to stand before God someday. It's knowing, and then he's going to, the resurrection, it's because of this resurrection, and again, we're going to get to it a little bit more next week. But he's making a confession. He's saying, listen, my defense involves what God has been doing in my life. These are the same words, by the way. We can, we can read the same things when I read from Peter. Let me just flip over to First Peter here for a little bit. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. I'll read them for you. Now, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? That's the introduction to it. But in verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense, there's that word, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In that same phrase, the end of that, verse 16, is that same word for, uh, for homologehos. When you make the good confession that those who slander you will be reviled, will be put to shame because of your good confession. There's the same connection made. But by the way, it's also made up, up above already in verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. And you do that by giving the reason for the hope that is where? Here. Not the hope that's out there. Now that's part of it, but the hope that's here. I've said this several times in several different ways. I'll say it again to you this morning. If I were trying to sell you something, I always go to standby vacuum cleaner salesman. If I were trying to sell you something and convince you it's the greatest thing ever and tell you how awesome it is and you need to have it, and you would ask me if I have it myself and I say no, you would never buy it because it would be foolishness. 
But if I'm trying to defend where I'm coming from or to tell you how great it is that Jesus Christ is the answer to every need and I can demonstrate from my own confession that I have this hope inside of me, that goes a different story, doesn't it? We should connect, if we're going to defend the gospel, we should connect it with our own confession. Now, here's the other verse I want to bring to us, which is verse 16. He says, I take, because I know that there's a day coming when all the just and and the unjust, no matter where you are at on that scale, we're going to stand before God. I take pain to have a clear conscience both toward God and man. And I simply want to ask you the question this morning, is that one of your chief priorities in your life? Is that one of your chief priorities in your life? That you can say, up among the things that I hold most dear and make sure happens in my life is this, that I have a clear conscience. I have no offense toward God or toward man. In light of the fact that it is the resurrection that is the hope of the gospel, but that resurrection is for the just and the unjust. We ought to be sure of this. Again, I can share just real briefly a couple of verses. The first comes from Philippians. As Paul says he wants to be, have a clear conscience toward God, he in fact in his letter to the Philippians says the same thing or prays the same thing for them. In chapter one, verse nine, he says this. It is my prayer that your love, Philippians, or it is my prayer, I can say to you this morning, believers at Riverview, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. That's the very same word for clear conscience here. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's hinged upon that you may know what God wants, you may discern and approve of what is excellent that you may have no no offense between you and God, no separation. Again, go back to Isaiah 59. It's not that God's hand is so short that he can't save you. It's not that his ear is so dull that he can't hear you cry for help anymore. But your sin, my sin, your iniquity has separated you from him. That's the offense. So Paul is going the opposite direction with this. He says, my prayer is that your love would abound more and more, that you would have knowledge and discernment, that you would approve what is excellent, what God wants so that you are no longer apart from him, that you are pure and blameless before him on the day of Christ. Now, we also want to maintain that with man, right? Paul, again, was also going to speak to that. In his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 10, he goes to talk about eating and drinking and idolatry and all those things. And we can look at the specific instance. We can broaden out a bit. And he says at the end of that chapter, chapter 10, in verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Give no offense. It's the very same word. Is it your, one of your uppermost priorities, maybe even your uppermost priority, to have a clear conscience before God? and before man. God, thank you so much for your word this morning.
There's much to have been, dug, been digging through. There's much to talk about. There's many things I've probably missed. There's many things I may have missaid, and I ask for your, uh, your correction of that, either now or in some way down the road, or maybe just removing it from our minds that it, as if it were never said. But in the same way, there's so much truth in your word that your spirit brings out through my mouth, but even many times just directly into the hearts and minds of those sitting here this morning. We need your truth in our lives. We need the things that happened so many years ago that we read about, that we want to study and learn about and hear how they happened and, and, and look at all the dynamics of how people behaved and what that has to say about us. We need all that to go beyond just that. To jump off that page, so to speak, those words, and to become part of our lives, of our hearts, of our, our, our way of thinking, our way of doing things, our understanding. Give us discernment, God, that we may approve of what is excellent and be right before you. We don't want to be like the Israelites in Isaiah chapter 59. As your church, God, we don't want to be like that. We don't want our iniquity, our transgressions, our straying from what you've asked us to do to be the thing that separates us. To where we're left in a place of crying out to you, wondering where you may be at, unaware that it is our own actions that have brought us to this place. God, by your grace, you have given us your word. By your grace, You have allowed us to understand, have access to your word and understand that you sent Jesus Christ to pay for our sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sins, that there is freedom in Christ. And by your grace, you have made us understand, to be able to understand that when Christ arose and went to heaven, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be our comforter, to be our guide, to be the one who calls us close to you, our paraclete. We want to hear that, that call of, of, of nearness, that parakala. We want to answer that. We want to draw near to you. Thank you that you've given us the Spirit. Help us to walk in step with the Spirit, God. Even this week, even as we wrestle with whether we have slipped from our commitment to maintaining a clear conscience before you or before men. Even as you remind us, as you draw those connecting dots of the necessity of having our own confession, the hope that is in us, that we may be able to answer in defense of the hope that all men can have. Help us to walk by the Spirit. Thank you, Father. We give you praise and glory. We need to be continually transformed by you through your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand this morning? I just asked the Father to give us the ability to walk by his Spirit, and so I invite you to willingly receive the Holy Spirit. Father, as you pour your Spirit out, as you, as you, uh, you've already given him to us, so as we relinquish control to him, we want to be under his, con- his control, his dominion more and more, that you may be Lord of our lives. Release us in the favor of your presence. Make your face shine upon us. Grant us your peace, Father, for we want to walk in your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go in peace this morning?